conversion by baptism of the Spirit. Mark Dever spoke at the 2010 Nick and Pastors Conference on this subject. During the beginning of his message, he said, <clears throat> For many people today, the idea of hypocrisy is less offensive than the actual idea of conversion. Do you realize how offensive that idea is increasingly in people of the 21st century? It doesn't seem simple. In fact, some people, to some people, it seems rude to the point of intolerance. To others, it even seems scary. What's going on? People are skeptical that anyone can change. Preachers, professors, lawyers, politicians, reporters, lobbyists, everyone has their predetermined vices, don't they? Wisdom today is thought to be in learning to accept your internal circumstances, to adjust to them, to adopt to them, not to fundamentally try to change them. What is the Freudian root? It is through love and work that we exchange crippling emotional conflict for our ordinary unhappiness. Die is cast, the law is fixed, our personality is assigned. The Lord cannot change his spots. The assumption is the anxious person, that's their personality. The insecurity, well, that's your fixed psyche. And maturity is being resigned to facing up to that truth. The suggestion that you can change deeply is regarded with serious suspicion. Any such suggestion is taken to be a potentially sinister tool of manipulation in the hands of the person who would coerce you into conformity and fair standards by cultivating in you a self-hatred, a loathing of some characteristic of yourself and your own person, whether that would be your sexual desires or your vocational ambitions or your ethical standards or your religious beliefs. We are taught today, what we are taught today is we are who we are and we are taught to be proud of it. I think if we follow Denver, we go on to really stop and think about the inability to change. When we really think about this, it is not something that we are proud of. It is something that haunts us. Our inability to be better is something that we medicate with alcohol and sex and spending. That we cannot change ourselves as the part of ourselves we are least able to actually face without going into despair, depression. Most often that worry that we cannot change ourselves lies beneath perpetual faking it. That everything is okay. C.S. Lewis said about this state, we never find the strength of the evil impulses inside of us unless we try to fight it. Try to fight it. Try, try to kill on your own, your addiction or your lust or your self-centeredness in the world. And you'll continue to find it still down there. Like a splinter you can't get out of your finger. From the day that we are born, self-centered sin is wedged in our heart. 
best way to hide this sinfulness and our inability to change, the best way to, to hide it and deal with it and manage it, is to say this is the way we There's no changing those things. I am who I am is heralded as freedom. That's freedom to say I am who I am. But anyone who has seriously wanted to be better than they are knows that to say I am who I am is in prison. Can you change inside? Can you become something different? Can you become someone different? Not just start to wear different clothes or get new friends or actually pick up a, a workout habit, a new routine, get a new career, get a new house. Can you become something different even if everything else around you stays the same? There is a way. But you cannot change yourself. We must be changed. We must be changed. It's not a pill that we can take. It's not a three-step plan that we can engage in. It's not a book to read or, or a podcast to listen to. This change is something that must happen to you. And this change is not just the sins that you have done that will go away and be forgiven. But the inside person who committed those sins can actually die. In one word, conversion. Conversion. This passage today has two main parts. What happened and what it means. What happened to Cornelius and Caesarea, and what it means. Chapter 10, we get the account from Luke that tells us how Cornelius came to be a Christian, how he was then baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. But then there's the second part, where Peter retells what happened, and in so doing, tells us what it means. What happened? In one sentence, through God's providence, Cornelius heard about Jesus became a Christian. That's what happened in chapter 10. Peter, who was an apostle, showing that he was an apostle by doing works, Luke recording miracles that were done by the power of Christ through Peter, proved that he's an apostle, beginning of chapter 10. But then, through God's providence, Cornelius heard about Jesus, and Cornelius becomes a Christian. That's what's happening in chapter 10. Cornelius may have been a God-fearer, someone who followed some Jewish religious ceremonies or, or customs, but it was still okay for Peter to go see him. Remember, Peter tells Cornelius when he gets there, listen, I, I know what you know, but I should not be here. We God brought Peter there to tell him about Jesus. This chapter, like the rest of Acts, is tripping with the providence of God. How does Peter get from Java, 35 miles south up to the coast, to find Cornelius? God saw to it. It was by providence. You, you hear Francis all through this chapter, which they read for us. While I was perplexed, this happened. And at that very moment, this happened. 
Peter goes into a spiritual trance, just a word for receiving a spiritual vision given to him by God. I know there's much to be said about the fact that Peter was very hungry, that he had a trance where he was told to eat bacon. <laughs> it's a vision, though, that means Peter is supposed to cross cultural boundaries. Those animals represent cultural boundaries, religious boundaries. The food in the vision was a boundary that represented Jew. Peter goes to see Gentile Cornelius. And at the same time, Cornelius, a doctor, not, not converted, but he's a Christian, not, not a Jew. He, he sees a vision where he learns Peter's name. He learns the city that Peter's in. And is told him to send someone. Patrick Schneider would put it like this if Acts is a song, God the Father conducts the ensemble. God is the one who, by his providence, got Peter to see Cornelius. And through this, Cornelius heard about Jesus and became a Christian. Look at Acts 10, 34 through 43. When Peter gets there, all these dreams of visions and, and, and trances and traveling. We're talking about 10, 12 hours of travel at least, still 35 miles, something like that. There's no buggies, you're just, just desert. Acts 10, 34 to 43, when Peter gets there, what does he say? God anointed Jesus with Nazareth, with the Holy Spirit, and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. They're about changing him. And we were witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. We saw, we saw him. Not all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as his witnesses. We ate. We drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, Jesus, is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets, the Old Testament, bear witness to everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. All that promise, the dreams, the moving around, so that Cornelius could hear that Jesus is the way for your sins to be forgiven. It's called the gospel, the good news. Jesus died, he rose again. If you put your faith in him, your sins will be forgiven. Instead of facing punishment for your own sin yourself. The message to Cornelius is the Bible's message to you. As surely as God's providence has brought Cornelius, Peter to Cornelius, why not assume that he has not brought you here today to hear this? That your sins, your sins against God, your sins against man, even the sins in your heart that no one knows. Even the sins that you don't even understand. Maybe you don't even know. Your sin can be forgiven by God. Today, that's the news to you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that God sent him to die on the cross for your sins, that he raised from the dead, that his blood pays for your sin, and be forgiven today. Put your faith, pray to God, I put my faith in Jesus as the only way that I could be forgiven. 
God's providence worked that out so that Peter could get to Cornelius and tell him that message. And then Peter, excuse me, Cornelius, hears it. And he believes. He hears that message right then, right there, and he becomes a Christian. He was baptized. Look there in Acts chapter 10, verse 48. And Peter commanded them. Cornelius had invited his family and friends over to his house. He commanded them, all those who were there, to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Something happens. Cornelius is, is changed. From that day forward, Cornelius is now baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Cornelius is now marked as a follower of Jesus. He was given the sign commanded by Jesus called baptism. Meaning he was signifying in his baptism that he was connected to Jesus spiritually. That he was united with him. That he had died. That he had risen. And that his sin is forgiven by his faith in Christ. Cornelius wasn't a Christian believing in Jesus. Now Cornelius is a Christian believing in Jesus. And he was formally baptized to show the people around him, Peter, me and you, through history, he was a Christian. Something happened. Did Cornelius just make the decision to start going to church? Did Cornelius look at all the religious options and decide to go with Jesus? What kind of change was this? What brought about the forgiveness of sin and baptism in Cornelius? How did Cornelius get converted from generic religious God-fearer to baptized believer in Jesus Christ? So that was his conversion. Not from God-fearer to better God-fearer. But from religious instance to believing in Jesus. How did that happen? Conversion by the Holy Spirit. Cornelius was converted by the Holy Spirit. You can mark this down. Every other religion requires you to change yourself for God. Meditate. Empty yourself enough. Pray five times a day. Go to church and don't cuss too much. This is Buddhism, Islam, and Mormonism. Christianity is the only religion where God changes you inside. That's what happened to Cornelius. The Catholic Church will say the Spirit of God is going to come affect you, but it's really there to kind of up to you. Christianity, however, will say God doesn't change anything. Conversion, a baptism of the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Why say converted? Why use the word conversion? If you're a student Bible study, you might notice that word conversion is nowhere in 932 through 1118. I think it's probably the most helpful term for us today. This is the term they use later in Acts 15.3 when Paul and Barnabas are explaining what happened to the Gentiles out there back to the apostles in Jerusalem. In Acts 15.3, they, Paul and Barnabas, passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all brothers. Conversion is 
One of the words the Bible uses. <coughs> what is conversion? Conversion is the inward transformation where you turn from sin to obedience. Your life turns from sin to obedience. And you turn from disbelief to belief in Jesus Christ. You turn from disbelief to believe. You trust Believe that the events of Jesus' life are true. And you trust that it's true for you. You trust that your sins are forgiven because you put your faith in Jesus Christ. It's the inward transformation and you turn from sin to obedience and from disbelief to belief. Who brings about this conversion? It is the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit. How did Cornelius get in the wave of the conversion of the Gentiles that is reported. There were many external things happening. The providence of God, the preaching of people. We've got transit, we've got angels talking, we've got geographic locations being communicated, but something happens inside Cornelius. The Holy Spirit brings about turning of his life and his faith toward Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit brings about conversion. When Luke describes the events, what does he say? Listen to the three ways that Luke describes the events of the Holy Spirit in Luke, in his household. It's great. In uh, Cornelius, in his household. Back to Acts chapter 10, verse 44 to 47. While Peter was saying these things, the gospel that we read earlier, that you cannot be saved through Jesus, while Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because of the gift of the Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? The Spirit fell, the Spirit was poured out, the Spirit was received. It's all the same thing. It's all describing the one thing that happened. It is one thing which the Bible talks about in many different ways to describe conversion throughout the New Testament. You might remember it was Juliet who told Romeo, a rose by any other name is still as sweet. So is conversion in the New Testament. Conversion by any other name is as sweet and true. Call it what you will in the New Testament conversions all over the place. If you go to John 3, you'll see this referred to as being born again. In Titus, you'll see it referred to as regeneration or renewal in Titus 3. In Ephesians chapter 2, you'll see this is referred to as us spiritually being brought from death to life. Spiritual, let's be. We refer to chapter 2 of Ephesians as a new creation, made something new. Colossians is referred to as a circumcision made without hands. It's referring to a spiritual circumcision, not a magical, physical circumcision. First Corinthians, washed, sanctified, justified, all referring to one thing in the Holy Spirit. Not always absolutely synonymous terms of con conversion, but pointing toward the transformation of turning to faith in Jesus Christ. You will be very frustrated if you go through the Bible, especially the New Testament, 
and you put them those terms and try to try to put those terms in sequential or or effective order, you will find that they each have the same root, the Holy Spirit initiated. If you want to say the Holy Spirit pours poured out, and then it is falling, and then it is received, and kind of process there that, that includes them. If you want to say, well, you know, the Holy Spirit falls on them, and then there's regeneration, and, and then there's faith, and then there's renewal, and then you come into creation, and the Bible is talking about. But we'll put all these things next to each other, inferencing the same thing. That the Holy Spirit initiates and accomplishes the conversion in which you turn from sin into faith in Christ. Notice how Peter defends the event of Gentiles becoming Christians. This conversion by the Spirit is how Peter defends the Gentiles becoming Christians. Look at accusation chapter 11, verse 2 to 3, when Peter is recounting the events. So Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. And it says it's brought back to 15, right? Eating sinners out there. Just like Jesus. What's the point here, right? Jews don't go to Gentiles' houses. That's an unlawful Peterson. Most likely it's just customary in this context. It wasn't necessarily in the law. You could not go to the law of the Bible. You could never have to do the Gentile. Like Hispanics might not go up to black houses. Ukrainians might not go up to Russians' houses. And I want to say something about Cowboys fans and Eagles fans. Biblically, Jews don't interact with Gentiles. Culturally, Jews don't interact with Gentiles. They're spiritually, they religiously unclean, dirty, godless. So what, what would Peter say as his defense for following the promise of God, going there, what is he saying happened? Look in Acts chapter 11, verse 15 through 16. He describes the events of what happened. He retells the events, how he got there, had a dream, or did he have a dream? Dreams converged, went up there, stayed the night, he became a Christian. But look what he says in Acts 11, 15 through 16. And Peter's telling what happened. He says, as I begin to speak, he's telling them about Jesus, telling them about what he's doing as an apostle, professing Witnessing that Jesus is the Son of God for forgiveness of sins. As Peter began to tell them the gospel, Peter says, the Holy Spirit fell on them just like us at the beginning, back in Acts chapter 2. And this is Peter's understanding of what happened that came to him. It's a providence. He says, and here's what I remembered when that was happening. I, that happened. When I began to tell about Jesus and the Holy Spirit fell on them, I remembered the word of the Lord. How he said, John baptized with water, but Jesus said to Peter and the apostles, You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So it meant for Peter to see these Gentiles now receiving the Holy Spirit. When Peter sees that Cornelius and his house, Gentiles, foreigners, receive the Holy Spirit, Peter remembers Jesus said this was going to happen. Jesus said you're going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. This is it. Peter recognizes that this happened to the Gentiles, that it's happening. God is giving the Gentiles the Holy Spirit, and they are believing in Christ too. This is how God is saving the Gentiles. Just like he's changing them on the inside. 
to put their faith in Christ, Peter himself. Peter's whole defense is, look at all these visions, that God got me there potentially. I told them about Jesus, and as I was telling them about Jesus, God poured out His Spirit on them. What's it kind of do? Don't you see what's going on here? Peter is preaching with his mouth the gospel of Jesus, and they can hear Peter talking with their ears. The deconversion is happening inside, and the Spirit is poured out on them. And it goes inside, and works inside to bring them to faith, to bring them to seeing, to hearing the good news of Jesus as true for them. This is how Cornelius became something different. He was baptized, not in water, but by the Holy Spirit. One author put it this way, in a quiet corner of the Roman Empire, in the home of a centurion of all people, there was a rip in the fabric of space and time. And the Holy Spirit baptized Corinthians. This is how it happens. This is how forgiveness of sin and the heart can be cleansed away and how you can become something new, a new creation. This is not just a side doctrine. For people to enjoy, to debate in the evening. This is the work of the Spirit, which is central to the plan of God to save people from all nations. Let me just explain a couple of ways how this doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, being how we are converted to faith, how it's not just a side doctrine. This is God's plan all through Scripture. Let me show you three ways this is God's plan all through Scripture. Just three quick words. We get to labor this for a long time. Three quick words. Prophets, Jesus, and apostles. Prophets, Jesus, and apostles. You will find this predicted in the prophets, affirmed, commanded in Jesus, and taught and encoded by the apostles. You find it in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Moses, prophet, the Lord said to him, chapter 30, verse 6, God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. There was circumcision in the flesh, but then there was a promise of something else coming. Circumcision in your heart. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27. After thousands of years of disobeying the law, not doing what they were commanded to do in Deuteronomy, God promised a new covenant in which instead of giving his people a law to follow, he would change them inside. Ezekiel 36, 27 says it like this, And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see this in Prophet Jeremiah as well. How is it that the Gentiles are going to become part of the people of Abraham, become part of the people of God? They change from the inside. The prophets foretold this as the new covenant. The spirit would do this inside. When God's people have faith to obey, God's promise to change them inside by his Holy Spirit. And Jesus taught this as well. This is a mark of Jesus' ministry. In Mark chapter 1, he says, and he, Jesus preached, saying, after me comes, or sorry, this is John the Baptist, after me comes one who is mightier than I, that's Jesus, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to tie, to stoop down in a tie. John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water, but he, Jesus, is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's a marker of Jesus' ministry at the beginning of Mark 1. That's what Jesus is going to come do. 
is ushered in the baptism of the Spirit inwardly. That's the ministry of the Spirit that Jesus commissioned to the apostles in Acts chapter 1. While staying with them, he ordered them, having raised from the dead, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, John the Baptist Bart, but you apostles will be baptized the Holy Spirit on many days from now. That's what Acts is all about. Jesus is still building and growing the church by that baptizing work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes along and accompanies the message of the gospel everywhere it goes, bringing about faith and repentance in those who hear about Jesus. This is encoded in the apostles. You can find this all over the New Testament apostles. Perhaps two of the most explicit are Romans 8 and Titus 3. In Romans 8 and 9, Paul says very straightforwardly, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ is not alone. You don't have the Spirit, you're not baptized by the Spirit, you're not converted by the Spirit, you're not filled with the Spirit, you're not a Christian. You don't have Christ. You're not a Christian. Titus 3, verse 5 and 6. Titus, or sorry, Paul says he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. How did God save us? According to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration. The, the washing of us being regenerated spiritually and the renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Paul encoding what happened to the centurion as the standard for the way everyone becomes Christian. How has God saved us? By mercy. According to his mercy, he washed us of the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's every Christian. That's what a Christian is. Period. When the apostles talk about unmerited salvation from God, they include not only the forgiveness of sins judicially, but the work of the Spirit to do the inward change, to do the inward cleansing and regeneration. So this is true through the Bible, from the prophets to Jesus and the apostles. And secondly, this is the necessity the necessity of conversion by the Spirit is near universal in church history. The necessity of conversion by the Spirit is near universal in church history. This is believed by the church for all times. The church has always believed that unless the Holy Spirit initiates conversion, there is no salvation. This is not unique to any group or denomination. The fallenness of man and the need for regeneration is shared by Roman Catholics, by Arminians, by Calvinists, and even old school Pelagians. It's well established from passages like Romans chapter 5 and Ephesians 2. Roger Olson, for example, leading Arminian of our day, is a professor of theology, ethics, and truth seminary. He says, if anyone comes to Christ with repentance and faith, it is only because they are enabled by God's quote, he puts quotes, not me, God's prevenient grace to do so. He acknowledges anyone comes to Christ. The only way you can do that is by the Holy Spirit. He says, classical Arminian theology attributes the sinner's ability to respond to the gospel with repentance and faith to prevenient grace. The illuminating, convicting, calling, enabling power of the Holy Spirit working on the sinner's soul. But then he has a sentence like this. That makes them free to choose saving grace. Council of Trent in 1547, Roman Catholics said in Canon 3 from Session 5, If anyone saith that without the prevenient inspiration of the Holy Ghost, 
Without his help, man can believe, hope, love, or be penitent as he ought. So as that grace of justification may be bestowed on him, let him be condemned. Catholics in the heat of the Reformation said that you do not have to work with the Holy Spirit in your heart to bring you about to faith. You don't believe that? You're an athlete outside the church. The church has known through time, nearly universally, that unless the Spirit of God comes to bring some inward change, some effect, there won't be any change. No repentance from sin. There will be no faith in Christ. But we must also go all the way the Bible says for us to go about the Holy Spirit in conversion. That the Holy Spirit does not come merely to bring us, to convert us from a fallen state to a neutral state. That as the Holy Spirit comes to bring us to the conversion of repentance and faith. That's where the Catholic Church falls short. They say in another place in the Council of Trent, if you say that man's free will in no way cooperates to obtain the grace of justification, let it be anathema. You have to be part of making yourself a Christian. In Arminian theology, a personal regeneration, Olson says, in Arminian theology, a partial regeneration, regeneration precedes conversion. He knows that the Holy Spirit must do something, but a partial regeneration precedes conversion. It's not a complete regeneration. That's part of the problem with Mormons. I hope you talk to Mormons when we come to your house, when we tell them about Jesus, if you open your Bibles with them, they're not Christians. They will tell you, however, when they're trying to convince you to become a Mormon, to listen to the Holy Spirit. They will tell you, listen to the Spirit. What's the Spirit telling you? Listen to the Spirit. Listen to the Spirit. They have a doctrine that you cannot become a Christian and Mormon in their minds unless the Holy Spirit does something to you. But in their minds, the Holy Spirit never converts you. The Holy Spirit just speaks to you secretly, spiritually. It doesn't actually do anything to you. It just talks to you. So they're not hoping for conversion. They're just asking to listen to the Spirit talking to you. Problem is, in these, you leave people to what one writer calls ultimate self-determination. You go from a sinful state to a fully converted and saved state <coughs> on your own will. Well, that's what happened with Cornelius. I don't think so. The Spirit fell on him. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John was baptized with water, but you will be baptized. You will be submerged. You will be immersed. You will be overwhelmed. You will be filled. You will be engulfed by the Holy Spirit. And so Cornelius was then on hearing, regenerate, washed, renewed, a new creation, born again, converted by baptism with the Holy Spirit. When we heard the word of Jesus Christ and believed, Therefore, his sins were forgiven because he was baptized. And that is what we all need. The change. The change that we can have in God is the inward change of conversion. The Holy Spirit. That's a question. Someone's been converted, someone's been changed. So now when they hear about Jesus Christ, they believe. When Jesus calls them to follow in discipleship, they follow in obedience and turn away from sin. He thoughts really quickly. And be a Christian might say, oh, I don't feel very converted. I don't feel converted. 
For that I would say, the great clarity of your vision given to you by the Holy Spirit is not to see how converted you are. The experience of conversion is to clearly see Christ. To have your eyes fixed on Him, to recognize Him as the Son of God, to see Him as crucified for sins, to see that He was risen from the grave. The more you know Christ, the more you look at Christ, the more you will know and be certain of your conversion. You may learn more about your conversion from the Bible than your memory. You may find more confidence in the gospel than in your emotions. Because the Holy Spirit did not come to convert you to new feelings only or primarily, but to see that Jesus is the means of salvation and see Him with a circumcised heart, the renewed, regenerate heart. When Paul is encouraging the Christians in Ephesus, he says in Ephesians chapter 1, 18, I'm praying for you guys that God will give you, that God will have the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you Christians may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. I'm praying God will show you your salvation in Christ. If you have eyes to see by the Holy Spirit, what do you have eyes to see? Christ. His power, His grace, His glory. The truthfulness of Him. And know that you can be forgiven in Him. Don't look to the question, have I converted? Look at Christ. The converted heart sees sin in you and the hope of Christ. Second, you might say, I'm, I'm certain I'm converted, but it doesn't really make any difference in my life. I'm certain that I'm converted, but it doesn't really make any difference in my life. If this is the case, you have very little reason to be certain. If you're very certain of your conversion, it makes no difference in your life. You have very little to be reason to be certain about your conversion. Those who are converted and see Christ by the Holy Spirit ought to feel pain about their sin. Ought to be grieved over their sin. Don't just think I'm converted and it makes no difference. Ask yourself, have I been overburdened by my sin? Come to see it. Then have I come to be relieved my burden of sin? Have I come to hate sin? Have I come to start to tell sin no? The screw tape letters, the demon wrote a Christian, what that Christian says, even on his knees, about his own sinfulness, it's all hair talk. At bottom, he still believes that he has run up a very favorable credit balance in God's ledger by allowing himself to be converted. And he thinks that he has shown great humility and condescension in going to church. Those who are converted by the Holy Spirit love the things of Christ. They love the word of Christ. They love the singing about Christ. They would not sit through a service like ours and think this is so boring. They would love that we take time and that they can read all of 9.32 through 11.18. Because I just love the word about Christ. And when I hear it, it affects me. 
I love singing songs that are about Jesus, and I love hearing the, the church sing songs. It reminds me of their conversion. I love singing about Jesus, even just our voices. I love praying. I see this book, Evangelical Pharisees, Bible Reeves, adds this. There's the problem of just how scandalous this is to modern sensibilities. Go make what Devin introduced us at the very beginning. Conversion is scandalous to the modern sensibilities about self-esteem, self-economy, and our ability to improve ourselves. I'm certain that conversion makes no difference. Every other reason we convert it, have a confidence. Lastly, praise God for conversion by the Holy Spirit. I mean, what we ought to do is not just acknowledge this doctrine. Not just put it in our statement of faith and put it in the drawer and just get that right. You know, thank God we got our statement of faith right. Praise God for your conversion. The conversion of every member of our church. Praise God that you can have hope for people you're sharing the gospel with. That they might actually come to faith and believe in Jesus Christ. This is the end in Acts chapter 11, verse 17. This is the conclusion. If then God gave the same spirit of gift, the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is I that I can stand in God's way? What is it going to do? I've got to keep him from, from being baptized and confirmed as a Christian. When they heard these things, when those were criticizing him, saying, God, I'm a Gentile spirit, when they heard these things, they felt silent. Nothing else to say. You tell us the Holy Spirit came on Cornelius from the Gentiles and became Christians that were baptized. They glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to faith. They glorified God. It says that in Acts 15 3, being on their way about the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And it brought great joy to all the brothers to hear the Holy Spirit has brought them to conversion. Every single church that preaches the gospel and has members who have been converted have reason to be rejoicing every day that we have faith, that we believe the gospel, and that God has saved us by the baptism of the Holy Spirit to that end. Oh, friends, every time we come to a group meeting, we share about the gospel conversations. Pray. Be ready to praise God. Oh, that one might hear of Christ and be saved. They might be saved by the baptism and the regeneration of the Spirit. And what a pain. What a pain it is to hear that Christ is heard. In the ear, rejected in the heart. Oh, that when Luke or Steve or Megan or Lily tell someone about Jesus, when you tell someone about Jesus, my Holy Spirit, would it be our prayer? The Holy Spirit might convert them, might bring about conversion, and that they, like we, will repent. And profess Christ and be baptized. That's the change God does by the Holy Spirit.
Father, thank you for your word, all of it. I pray that you would help us this week take it to heart. That it would be useful for our joy. That it would be helpful and glory to you in our lives. Help us be humble. Help us rejoice. Help us be prayerful. Help us be courageous. Help us self-abandon ourselves. Remembering how Cornelius can faith, how we can faith, and how anyone might come to faith. Help us in that way, Father, for your glory and for our children. In Christ's name.